Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the one and only Elaine Benstead. Elaine is the chief executive of Zoos SA, which operates both the Adelaide Zoo and Monado Safari Park. And she's been in this role since September 2012. Since being in the role, Elaine has led the improvement of the financial position of this conservation charity and increased the Zoos SA membership base from 26,000 to over 50,000 people. She's also led the work that culminated in the release of a 20-year master plan for both Adelaide and Monado Zoos in 2015. Prior to her appointment as Chief Executive of Zoos SA, Elaine held the position of Chief Executive of TAFE SA and preceding this, held senior roles in both state and local government. Elaine has also worked in the private finance sector with human resources and training management experience, operational and project management experience, and many, many other management roles. She's a wife, a mother, and a proud owner of German Shepherd Dogs. Elaine was the recipient of the 2014 Australian Institute of Management Non-for-Profit Manager Award and the recipient of the Telstra South Australian Businesswoman of the Year Award for Purpose and Social Enterprise in 2017. Outside of her work with Zoos SA, Elaine is also the Vice President of Zoos and Aquariums Association and Chair of the Finance and Audit Committee. She's a board member for Children's University Advisory Board, UniSA Business School Program Advisory Board, the Australian Rhino Project Board, International Koala Centre of Excellence Board, World Association of Zoos and Aquariums Membership and Ethics Committee, and also the Treasurer. She's a board member of the Regional Development of Australian Murraylands, the Riverland Board, and also the Environment Institute and Advisory Board. So getting to the podcast itself. As we arrived at the Adelaide Zoo, Elaine had somehow orchestrated the white-cheeked gibbons and the siamangs to uh, call out to us as we entered. It was an absolute treat. The podcast was also a real treat as we talked to Elaine about her journey on where she is today, to the future of Zoo's SA, to how they managed through the tough time of the pandemic in 2020. We also touched on what we can all do to be more environmentally conscious and play our part in creating a better world, not only for the humans of this planet, but for the longevity of all life. You are absolutely going to love this podcast as Elaine's passion does not waver the whole episode. So if you like the episode, remember to hit subscribe and check us out at synergyiq.com.au. Cheers. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have the amazing Elaine Benstead on the show, CEO of Adelaide or Zoos SA, I should say. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking forward to the chat, Daniel. It's um, I I didn't know who's more excited about me being here today, (laughs) my two children (laughs) or myself. I'm an Adelaide Zoo um, uh, connoisseur at heart. I've been here a few times. My, my family love this place. So that's, that's uh, great to hear. Thank you. So thank you for coming on the mm. show. So tell us a little bit 
about Elaine, who you are and, uh, you know, where you got to today being the CEO? Yeah, and it, a lot of people ask me because I, I certainly didn't have a standard career, um, but I grew up in um, South Australia pretty much. I'm Scottish, but we came out when I was very young and always had a love of animals and literally going through high school or primary school and then high school, all I ever wanted to do was be a vet. And yeah. I was about to, I had plans to go to Perth because there wasn't a vet school back in those days in South Australia. Yeah. And I kept hoping I would grow out of the fact that I'm really, really squeamish. So if there's blood, I faint. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and that's not a good career trait, no. really. So I no. couldn't be a vet. So I went to uni and I was doing a science degree because I'd picked all my subjects about being a vet and then realised I had I didn't want to be a scientist. So I dropped out and ended up going a very different career path, went down the sort of business route, worked in the banking and finance sector for a long time, but mainly in training. So I was the training manager for ANZ yep. and then eventually ended up in government. Um, with my last role in government, I was the chief executive of TAFE here in South Australia and then literally saw the job of chief executive of SA advertised and thought, oh, wow, dream job, dream job. And then I thought about it and thought, I really don't know very much at all about running zoos but I talked to the recruiter and uh, was successful because at the time I think zoos SA was in a pretty bad financial position mm -hmm. and like a really bad financial position and yet all of the animal part of the operations was running really well but the business part of it wasn't so it was probably really good luck timing for me yeah. that I had the business skills and the education which of course is such an important part of, of what we do and that was back in 2012 and so I've been here since then since and I've then. told the board that this is my last Ten job. Ten years next year. Yes, cool. it's gone uh, incredibly quickly. A long service leave. I will indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, it's gone really quickly but in some ways, yeah, the, the life before the zoo seems a long time Ago. in my history yeah, yeah. So. isn't it funny the way the universe mm -hmm. moves at moves out of your way to sort of so it helps you head in the direction that you want yeah things just sort of sometimes and I think it's also being willing and I, I do quite a bit of mentoring with younger people and and one of the key bits of advice I give them is is stretch yourself and be brave like quite literally I just sort of jumped in feet first and yeah. then thought about it afterwards yeah. and thought really I don't know much about the zoo business at all but it is a really close network of people so I now have friends who run zoos all around the world um, and I could always reach out to colleagues in Victoria and yeah. WA or in Sydney and and sort of share ideas and so it's it, it's a very welcoming group of good zoos because while there's a lot of zoos in the world I'd say there's not a huge number of really good zoos and we all network very yeah, closely what did the first few months or six months look like starting as a CEO? You say you're coming from a background like education, mm -hmm. in TAFE, uh, government body, moving into a non-for-profit mm -hmm. in Zoos SA. The learning curve must have been huge. You said before you mentored about teaching kids to move into that mm -hmm. sort of uncomfortable zone yep you you definitely would have been there in that first six months I think the first week I got on a plane and, and flew to China and I had to have conversations with our China um, partners about giant panda breeding yeah, wow. <laughs> so yes there was a lot of learning I was reading a lot of scientific papers in the plane trip <laughs> and learning different languages and, <laughs> and so yes there was you know there was a lot of learning and there still is I still learn things all the time but at the same time 
there was a lot that was the same. Yeah. And so if you look at the role of a chief executive, you know, I don't have to be a vet. I've got an amazing Correct. team of vets. Um, I did have to manage budgets. Well, I was managing a really big budget in TAFE. Mm -hmm. The concepts of budget management, whether it's a household budget, whether it's a three million, which is like us, a 30 million, TAFE had 350 million. Yeah. But the actual concepts of running a budget are exactly the same. Managing yeah. staff, managing people, uh, stakeholder relationship, all of that is the it's same. It's the business element it's, of it. It's yeah. the business element of it. It's just in a different context. Yeah. Um, so it was learning the context, learning what makes people tick in a zoo environment. Especially different. There'd be so many different types of stakeholders. in the Lots of stakeholders and especially in those first um, or that first year where the zoo had been uh, in such difficulties so a lot of discussions with banks a lot of discussions with treasury and then and a lot of discussions with unions and staff to try and get us back on some form of balance um, which we did and we started then investing in the future a little thing called COVID has made a little bit of extra little challenge bit, yeah. in the last 12 months but we'll survive I'm sure so yes it's, it's we've I've sort of feel like we've gone in cycles of where I've needed to put my energy the first year was um, getting the zoo back on track financially and having some good planning. And then we sort of had that real focus on master plan and conservation planning. And then we were just starting to get into the development phase. That's been put a little bit behind with, with yeah. COVID. But, uh, yeah, so there's been different challenges across those nine years. Well, it feels to me the branding especially of Zoos SA, whether it may be because I've got kids that are uh, nine and seven years old. You maybe. now see I, it all the time. I feel like <laughs> I see it all the time, mm -hmm. yeah. But, I mean, that's a good thing. The, the fact that I do have kids and I am seeing the brand pop up all the time is you're doing your marketing right. Yeah, look, so, I've got a fabulous, fabulous team. I must say when I first started that was one of the, the KPIs. I'm, I'm a really firm believer in having very strong strong performance targets and mm -hmm. one of them was uh, about the number of media releases that we would issue every week and it was just changing the mindset of our staff that you know, we've got so many staff that see amazing things all the time and most people these days have a mobile phone with them so capture it you know let, let's use social yeah, media hashtag. so we can get hashtags out <laughs> use LinkedIn all of that stuff um, <clears throat> so I really wanted the conversation of the zoo to be about animals and conservation and not about the fact that the zoo's got a debt that it can't manage because mm. that had been the rhetoric. That was really the yeah. only thing that was in the media at the time and we needed to shift that. And it took about, I'd say, about four years before I would do media interviews where I wasn't asked about finances. Yeah, and wow. And then it finally got to that point of, oh, hallelujah, we can just talk about good stuff and animal stuff and conservation stuff, not Yeah, money. absolutely. So what, you know, you walk into a CEO role where, you know, debt is a problem, mm -hmm. what, what's the first thing that you look at? Did you make cuts or did you just, what What was your thought process? Yeah, look, and that? again, it's it's the same as any organisation would. We literally went through the budget line by line. It's also a really good way to get to know an organisation yeah, because absolutely. I just asked lots and lots of questions. Why do we have to spend this? What is this being spent on? So it was literally line by line of expenditure and, we asked three questions. So we sat with each budget manager. I say we, myself and the finance manager. Um, we asked, do we have to spend the money? 
And the answer to that was pretty much yes. Mm-hmm. It, the zoo wasn't wasting money. So there weren't those nice, easy, low-hanging fruits yeah, that having yeah. worked in government, I think if you go through that same exercise, you can usually find yeah. a fair few of those. It's a lot of fridges full of milk Yeah, and stuff didn't in, have a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were down to the stage of, you know, do you buy long-life milk because that's cheaper. Yeah. So that was our there milk discussions. So, yes, can we – do we have to spend it? Can we spend less? Can we be more efficient? So in things like our purchasing. Um, and the third was can we get someone else to pay for it? And we we're probably the most successful in that third. So working really hard to try and get corporate sponsorships and whether that's um, people like, you know, Costa Mushrooms. If I can get mushrooms provided and we provide a sponsorship benefit, then that's an expenditure we don't need to incur. Yeah. So literally looking through every expenditure line Everyone. and trying to, and that included, you know, recruitment services, uh, legal services. We've got an amazing range of contra and cash sponsorships from a lot of local businesses and that helped reduce expenditure. You know, we didn't go the route that so often is done as far as looking at redundancies of staff and that was simply because we didn't have cash um, and if you to pay out. um, So we really had to look just at smarter rostering and as people with people left, we looked at how we might uh, reshape the workforce and then it was about driving revenue. So how do how we, we get, how do we diversify our revenue? How do we get more people in? So putting, you know, extra school holiday programs so that people don't think that coming to the zoo is something you do once and then don't do again for three yeah. years. A really strong focus on on membership. So we've more than doubled our annual members yeah, um, because that gives us a bit of certainty of revenue. But it also gets people more engaged with us because mm. they're then getting the fortnightly uh, news they hear about our conservation work so it's not just a day visit they become part of our family so so there was a number of different things yeah great and we'll go into some of the, the big stuff that's happening yep. yeah, shortly i am uh you, you have been quoted to say and this is on the website right so mm-hmm. i'm not it's not a, it's not a <laughs> scoop or anything like that uh your role as CEO has provided you, and I quote, with a lot of opportunities for wow moments mm-hmm. uh, that no other job can provide. I'm really interested in that quote. What's a what's a wow moment look like to you in Adelaide Zoo? Oh, I, I have so many. Um, so it might be just recently we had Azizi, our little male giraffe who was being mismothered at Monato and we brought him down to Adelaide. So to see... A little eight-week-old giraffe coming out of a trailer, and then see our staff bottle feeding. You know those sort of oh, things. Yeah. So Go, what's mismothered? Why? That mum just decided not to feed. Don't know why. Um, so our so, staff stepped in, yeah. and little Azizi's now down to only three bottles a day, but they're like five-liter bottles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, going into the animal health centre when a lion is getting a health check, and being able to go in there and sort of touch a lion's paw. Um, you know, hearing the stories of, of uh, orange belly parrots being released to the wild, and we know that we've bred them. You know, those there's just so many of those yeah. stories. I, you know, I, I get them all the time, and to me, they're real wells. And then there's the, the simple ones of, you know, when we were closed last year for three months. The day we opened, um, it was it was end of June. It was freezing cold. It was wet. And there was people at the gate half an hour before I had the joy of chopping that sign off to say we're shut. And there was people walking through the gates with tears just because they hadn't been able to come here for three months. That yeah. like it, this place means a lot to a lot of South Australians, it and does. and so seeing that is really you know, it gets me teary. It so. would. Uh, my my daughter was telling me 
about she's doing this assignment at school at the moment and it's on emus mm-hmm. is what she's decided. And she was telling me about this, an emu that was found on the side of the road. Is that correct? Yeah, so we've got Cecil. Cecil, uh, that's the one. She did say that. <laughs> Cecil's a bit of a star. Yeah. Um, yeah, Cecil is gorgeous. And he was one, he was hand-raised here because his mum had been killed in by a car. So he was hand-raised from when he was quite young and he, he really interacts with people. So when we were closed... I mean, my keeping staff were doing all sorts of things to make sure that animal welfare didn't um, go backwards during that period because mm. a lot of animals really um, get some enrichment from yeah. uh, our, our variety of visitors. And Cecil was one of those because he is used to interacting with with people. So he had mirrors hung up so that he could see himself, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. He's a bit of a superstar. Brilliant. I love it. Uh, I should be happy to know I brought that up too. <laughs> So congratulations are in order with the, for the movement of the um, the visitor centre mm-hmm. down at Monado. That's exciting. It's very, very exciting. Um, I was on site just uh, on Friday doing the, the site visit. That's why I've got my hard hat close by. Yeah. But it's so good to see it coming out of the ground. Um, it's it's a stunning design. We, we really – we went to a, an architectural competition, went to five different architects and the one that Intro, who are local architects, came up with, we just fell in love with. It's It's – it speaks to who Monato is. It's very yeah. earthy. It's very environmentally focused, um, but it's quite a wow design with the rammed earth and caught end steel. So I can't wait for it to be open. So well done. So you've obviously turned the corner from a financial perspective to be able to build this, which is great. The and I understand it's one of the biggest outside of Africa, Safari Park, is that The whole safari experience, so that the new visitor centre, which we were were fortunate we've got both Commonwealth and state government funding Mm -hmm. support to help us do it. That always sounds easy, but it was about four years' worth of grant applications (laughs) before we got to that funding. Um, But that then gave the confidence to Jerry Ryan, who's our private partner, who's building the accommodation on site. And we met with Jerry just last week. He's in Victoria, so we haven't been able to see him face-to-face for 14 months, but we finally got a meeting yeah. with him. Right. So when he opens the glamping and the safari hotel, we will then run the animal experiences and it will be the largest um, safari experience in the world outside of Africa. That's so that's so that, And it's less than so an hour's drive. So that's just great from a tour- tourism perspective. Oh, from a tourism perspective, it would just be absolutely fabulous. Um, it, and whether it's when international tourism opens and it will eventually come yeah. back, but for South Australians and for Australians, Australians yeah. um, it, it, it will be the closest people can get to an African, like a Kruger <coughs> experience. So. That's so good. It feels like South Australia is moving in the right direction at the moment. Yeah, and certainly great. in the Murraylands there's a lot of developments happening. Mm. Um, it was always part. We, we launched our master plan back in 2015. Just the 20-year The 20-year 20 20 plan. And at the time we launched it, we always said it could either be 10 years or it could be 30. It just depended on money, as a lot of things and in pandemics. our world does, <laughs> and global pandemics. <laughs> uh, but for Monato, the new visitor centre and accommodation was number one uh, yeah. that we wanted because – and for us, it's it's not – we won't be running the accommodation. We'll run the animal experiences But for us it was for two reasons. One, it will allow us to connect with a different group of people and Mm -hmm. therefore get our conservation messaging. But two is it will raise uh, revenue for us and that revenue will go into our conservation work but also allow us to upgrade some of the facilities at Adelaide uh, that aren't of the standard that we want them to be. Mm. You know, this is the second oldest zoo in Australia. So there's some beautiful areas and there's some areas that are old and just not either for our animals or our visitors what we want them to be. But we can never fund that out of our current operations. Like zoos don't make money. 
No. We sort of struggle to just break even every year. So to invest to find $10 million to build a new line facility, we needed some other way of getting. Um, and most of the government grants need matching funding. So yeah. the accommodation and the safari experience will allow us to increase our revenue and then we can reinvest that back into Perfect. things that we want to do. Because we've always got a long list of things we want yeah, to do. As you, I just as spend you, half my life chasing well, for as the you money should, to I do mean, it. It's for the longevity of, of the animals out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Obviously, with the rise of endangered species and everything, it almost feels like it's going up exponentially at the moment. Well, so. it is about, I mean, the latest uh, in the International Union of Conservation report that came out shows that of, of the species that have been assessed, and not all species have been assessed, more than a quarter are either endangered or critically endangered, vulnerable to extinction. I mean, it's... So a quarter of the animals. A quarter of the, the animals. In the world. And that that's, that mirrors um, the species that we hold at Adelaide and Monato Safari Park. So I think we're I think we're about 23% of the species we hold are, are vulnerable to extinction. Some are already extinct in the wild. So it's it's a very, very scary number. So what's extinct in the wild at the moment? So if you look at our scimitar-horned oryx at okay. Monato, um, there are none left in the wild. Wow. If you look at, um, I think, Addicts, the last count, I think there was three. You know, we're doing things, work with the Kangaroo Island Dunart, a little tiny little brown yeah. cute thing that there was estimated to be about 500 left and that was before the fires that went through at the oh, start wow. of last year. So, yeah, a lot of the work, Western Swamp Tortoises, um, probably the most endangered amphibian in the world. So, yeah, a lot of the work we do are with animals that are in serious, serious trouble in the wild and that's either Australian species or internationally. Um, and it's not getting any better, sadly. Yeah, that's that's not that's not. Good. It's estimated there's more Sumatran tigers in private ownership in fairly horrific circumstances than there are in the wild. It's estimated about four hundred Sumatran tigers left in the wild. Yeah, that's not good. Not good. No. And you could just keep giving so many examples like that, which is why the work that good zoos do is so important, um, because not only does it uh, we get involved in breeding programs and fundraising programs for animals in the wild, but it also just brings that information to an audience of people. I mean, people come to the zoo to have a fun day out with their family um, or with their girlfriend or boyfriend. We're finding it's a, that's one of our second biggest markets. Yeah. It's a very safe place to come. Yeah. Uh, but when they're here, they hear about conservation. And yeah, if they become a, a member, they hear more about conservation. And, and then we try and talk about just what are some of the little things that you can do in your private life, the use of plastics. You know, I think that last thing I read was um, they've estimated about 90% of seabirds that they've found have got plastics in their stomach. Just think we can all change that. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. When, when it must be frustrating, it's probably the word that comes to mind, when you've got people, especially in power, who just don't believe in climate change or don't believe in um, conservation, where, where do we? Where, when do we wake up as a world? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've read just recently David Attenborough's latest book, The yeah, Living Planet, yeah. and it's almost like I'd just love to mandate it. <laughs> Mandated reading yeah, for everybody. Correct. Because it, it tells, and because he's 94, and he tells the first half of the book is his view of his life, and he opens every chapter with just some simple statistics about what the human population, global population is, what percentage of wilderness is left, yeah. uh, what the CO2 um, particles in the atmosphere. And he just progresses that over 60, 70 years, and it's 
he just says we're on this exponential. Every graph you look at is just going up, whether it's pollution, whether it's climate, whether it's GDP, everything post-war has really just been growing. And he said we are now at that point where it needs to stop. Uh, he uses a really simple analogy, which I'm going to borrow, uh, of a Petri dish where you put bacteria in it. And if, if the bacteria realises it's in a perfect environment for growth, it just has this exponential growth. And that's very much what humans were doing. And bacteria. But, you, <laughs> but you keep growing and growing and a Petri dish has, a, you know, gets to the point where it can't, cope and once you get past that point bacteria starts fighting for proteins and then they start killing each other and then they die off mm. and he said the earth is finite so he's very much saying that we are at that point we're the last generation that can address this but we need to start making changes quickly and then the second <laughs> half of the book goes on to some of his suggestions of how you can change it great so um, it's a must read for everyone. i so think it's it david is. attenborough's new book yeah the living planet living planet absolutely and i'd love every You're not policy the first person maker on the show to actually have mentioned that book so. yeah it's um and, and you talked you know we're very again talk about wow moments you know growing up jane goodall was one of my all-time yeah. heroes I've now had the opportunity to meet her on oh, a number of wow. occasions and, and always absolutely amazed so that's when the, I do. Was in the mist. Uh, no, that was Diane Fossey. She was oh, another. Um, she was uh, chimpanzees. Chimpanzees. Yeah. Great. And, you know, when she was here in 2019 and we'd just had a little chimpanzee born and so we asked Jane to name our chimpanzee and she named it Hope. Oh. Because she said you can, you always have to have hope for the future, and that there's good things happening, even though there's a lot of bad things happening. She always puts her focus on the positive. So. Yeah, so pretty powerful. Very powerful. I can see a little bit of motion in your face right yep. now. So yes, it is a very, very powerful thing. Um, I think it, it, it really. If you don't know much for the people who are listening, if you don't know much about the conservation of the world and all what's happening with the animals, I do empower you to go and read up and mm. research and you can do and then And then it's really, and that's part of our messaging is it's, it is caring enough about it and that's part of where good zoos help because if you, if you love animals, if you see a Sumatran tiger and fall in love with them and they are just majestic, beautiful creatures, you then think what can you do to give them a better future mm. and is that through your choices you make when you buy products that you don't use unsustainable palm oil in your products. That is a decision you can make that will help um, Sumatran tigers in the wild. So it's about creating that love of nature because people won't change their behaviour unless there's a reason to. Mm. And I think a lot of that reason is creating love, getting children inspired by nature. Absolutely. Uh, and children are often the ones who drive change at home. That's how things like recycling usually takes off because the parents, yeah. the kids get, you know, they, they get the lessons at school. They then tell mum and dad, hey, don't do that. Yeah, well, that, look, then that's the thing. A lot of it is it's not that people are uh, bad, if that's the right word, but it's more about they just you don't know what you don't know, right, and the education isn't out there. So people like uh, David Attenborough and businesses like, you know, Zoos SA, it's very, very powerful to, for you guys to be pushing that message out and, and educating yeah. the world. And and in Australia, um, zoos have visited, I think, the last statistics, and these are a couple of years old, but um, the major zoos have about 22 million visits a year. It's a lot of people. So we are in a very powerful and privileged position 
to influence that. Absolutely. Just because of that sheer volume of people that we get. Yeah, people walking through the door, being mm-hmm. educated as they walk through, through and around the, mm-hmm. the zoo. Yeah, brilliant. Now, you mentioned earlier that Adelaide Zoo is the, one of the second oldest, mm-hmm. 174 years. Uh, combined with the Minato. Oh, so we, we opened uh, at Adelaide, uh, well, the society was formed in 1878, wow. first opened its gates to the public in 1883. 1883. And, and, when, and when we closed last year with COVID, um, there had only ever been one day in the history of that whole time that we'd been closed to the public. That was when somebody tried to blow up our ATM with some nasty chemicals. Um, so to close the gates and say we don't know when we're going to reopen was incredibly challenging. I mean, the, the zoo had been open through World Wars. It had been open through the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, so it was, it, yeah, nobody could have seen it coming. No. I don't think. No, if you'd asked yourself three, you know, three months earlier, would you ever close the doors? I can almost guarantee you'd have said no. We, we did in our risk register. I went back and looked in our risk register. We did have global pandemic in there. Oh, really? <laughs> um, but that's because we work with zoonotic diseases, which is diseases yeah. that spread from, from animals to humans. And so there was always that potential, but we just never thought it would be like 12. And I, I still find it hard to believe that it's 12 months on. and It's 12 months to this week, isn't it? It's, yeah, we closed. In fact, we had a, a staff barbecue because we'd had to cancel our Christmas party because we had no money. But we managed to, to have a staff barbecue. We had one on Thursday night at Adelaide, one Friday at Monato, and that was to mark the 12-month anniversary of our closing. And I did say to the staff, and I can't believe that what did I do last night? I rewrote a COVID management plan. Like we're still in it. I, you just, I would have thought it would be maybe for a month we close and then things pick up, but it's not yeah. gone away well, well, yet. It's on our last conversation uh, previous to this podcast. Obviously, we you mentioned to me, and it's something that I'd never thought of. And again, this goes back to the you don't know what you don't know, right? Uh, you mentioned to me that. You know, the, yes, every other business in the world can move to technology and we can send our people home, but Adelaide Zoo and Monado Zoo, you, you just can't do that because people still need to come in. There's still animals that need to be fed and cared for and looked after and therefore, you're, you, you know, you still need the revenue to be able to do this, but when the doors are closed, it's... Yeah, it, uh, was, uh, it was a few fairly horrific period of weeks, months, because, yes, we, we stood down half our staff on no pay and, and a whole pile of others on reduced hours and reduced pay. And they're our visitor-facing staff, so our yep. people at the front gate and retail, et cetera. But, yeah, animal carers and, and vets need to still come to work and they still need to care for the animals and the animals eat just as much whether no, no, there's yeah, anyone watching them or not. Um, so not sitting there going, I better take it easy this nah, week. No, I better go on a diet this week. <laughs> so it was, I mean, we were, we were, Lucky in Australia that the government supports um, meant we could survive, so we were eligible for JobKeeper. So when I mean, we had stood down our staff, which was not a fun couple of days, mm. but then JobKeeper was announced a week later, and so at least for the staff that were stood down, they were able to get um, access to some funding. And then there was a funding package uh, developed um, with Austrade, which covered the animal food and veterinary drugs that are necessary so at least all zoos meant animal welfare was going to be looked after and i know because i sit on a number of global zoo committees that hasn't been 
the case in other countries. So whenever I think it's really challenging and I'm having sleepless nights, I just think about my counterparts in Europe and they're back in third wave and, and really still trying to work out. I think we'll see a lot of good zoos that close down, sadly. Yeah, that's not good, mm. especially when we're trying to uh, conserve. You did mention to me, which some, I think I uh, walked away feeling a little bit sick from this, was when you said that zoos internationally, and not naming any, but were feeding their animals with... Yeah, there was certainly um, some European zoos that said if they didn't get financial support, they would need to think about euthanising some of their animals to feed to their, their critically endangered species. I think it was a, a, a very emotive and real plea for financial support. Mm. Um, I, I, talking to my counterparts, at least probably not from government support but from their communities, they've got support so mm. they didn't have to take that step because that would just be that's not, a horrific that's thing to nice. even yeah. think about. I remember walking away from that going, oh, that's. Yeah. And because we had the government supports here, that was <clears throat> never, ever, in the, in the and not at all. We always knew that animal food and veterinary care could continue. So, so you, the past eight years mm -hmm. since you came on as CEO and all the hard work that you'd been trying to get your financial management sorted, did that go back under through COVID or was the supports there? Uh, look, we've certainly gone a bit backwards. So we had, um, we've, we've been on an accelerated debt repayment strategy to mm -hmm. try and clear the debts that um, we had when I started. Um, we've had to reduce our debt payments back to the bare minimum that's life. Yeah, <laughs> you know. everyone's. Positive. At least we didn't have to borrow more money, which many of the zoos around the world needed to do yeah. to survive. We had an emergency overdraft set up so that we could make sure we um, could continue to pay our animal care staff. But luckily, as I said, with the JobKeeper support, we didn't have to draw on that. I must say, doing our budgets for next year, which we are in the thick of, um, there's there's a gap. We haven't quite found out how we're going to fill that mm. yet because. Um, we don't have the government, we're no longer eligible for any of the government sports and most of them have, have stopped now, um, but we do still have a big revenue gap. We are still on number restrictions, so we're only on 50% capacity at both sites. But it's all the extras we do, um, you know, a lot of weddings and events, so the money we get from catering, yeah. all of that just is a lot. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think if you look forward the next 15 months, we normally could say that our caterers have got a really full schedule of conferences, weddings, et cetera, and it's a pretty thin-looking book at the moment just because yeah. there's so much uncertainty. So it will still be a challenging 15 months, but you know, we've got through 12. We will get through the next 15. The staff have been amazingly creative about um, just how we can try and drive revenue. We now run ghost tours of the zoo. <laughs> Not something I would have thought we would be doing. Um, so ghost tour meaning? Uh, yeah, there's a, an, a local uh, Adelaide company called Haunted Horizons ah, yes. who've been running uh, ghost or paranormal tours through um, Glenside Hospital yes. and Adelaide Jail. I, I think for, I've been to the remand. Yeah, they've been going for many, many yeah. years. And they were I did always feel the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. A <laughs> well, few if you times. come to the zoo at night, it's because Minchin House. This is meant to be. Which is, I'm so lucky to have my office in here, um, but we're meant to be haunted in this 
building. Okay. And so they take people for walks around the zoo at night and there's a history walk that just talks about some of the tales of um, the yeah. past and then there's a paranormal. No. So it brings you in didn't a bit of money. tell me about this before you book this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm usually the one here. The, I, do get, I do get a little radio call from security to tell me it's time to go home because it's, a, it's not a very scary thing to see the boss sitting at a computer trying to do budgets <laughs> while you're trying to do a ghost tour. So I have to leave <laughs> yeah, um, a little bit earlier than normal just to, uh, yeah. That's hilarious. But it's, it, it, it's just things that we're trying to um, bring in some diversity of, of yeah, revenue. Yeah, that's great. We've been doing night zoos. So it's getting that, innovative. Yeah, that's the way it is. Absolutely. So 50% throws me because uh, we're told to go outside mm-hmm. and the zoos uh, offer, obviously offer yep. an outside uh, facility. Why are we at 50%? Oh, just the way the emergency directions are written. And zoos... So this is a diplomatic answer, is it? Well, I do, I do have to be careful. I know it's, you know, it's... it's When when the roadmap, we always do... Have, you have to laugh at some things. When the roadmap to recovery, I think it was called, first came out from the Commonwealth and it had the sort of four steps of, of where different organised... Where, where different industry types would reopen. Mm. And zoos were, first of all, listed with brothels and strip clubs, which we... Yeah, sort of had a bit of a chuckle because I'm no. not quite sure uh, which brothels or which zoos the uh, yeah, politicians were comparing a... us to. And then <laughs> we, we, no. <laughs> we had a lot of discussions. I would really like to have seen us listed with national parks or botanic gardens because I think that's more aligned yes, to what we that, are. that makes more sense. But at the moment we're listed in public entertainment with galleries and libraries and so – it's just the way the directions were written. So at the moment we're still on 50% um, and we're hoping to get to 75% very soon. If we could get to 100, we'd certainly help the forward budgets because it's not just for our daily visitors. It's also we run um, behind-the-scene experiences like at Lions 360 yes. at Monato, which is incredible. I've, I've fed them. Great fun so and really, really bones, popular. The crunch of the bones that when they, you just think, I've got, oh, yeah. Lions if, are if the I'm most. If I'm stuck with you, I'm in. Some you wouldn't last tra- long. I'm in some serious trouble. They are yeah. incredible predators. They, they're absolutely phenomenal. Um, but that's a, a, a really popular and um, does drive revenue for us. That's also got capacity constraints yeah. as well. So we, I think we run 36 different behind the scenes. Some we're not able to run at the moment, and that's just because we take people into smaller areas, so we can't do mm-hmm. the social distancing. Some is for animal management. Um, we're not running them with our primates because primates have been known to get COVID, so we're just uh, being careful. And others, it's just because we're on capacity restrictions. So hopefully they'll get eased soon. Fingers crossed. But, uh, Fingers I'd, crossed. I'd really prefer not to have to write another COVID management plan. No. But. I'm sure I will over the next 12 months. Wow. This is the word, these words are the new normal, I guess. We yep. Hopefully we move out of that soon. Well, hopefully the new normal of the world gives a better respect for the interface with nature, animals and humans because, you know, there was a zoo scientific paper written about six years ago that basically talked about a pandemic caused by zoonotic diseases and less behaviours change like the wet markets and things like that. So, this, you know, it's not something that was a surprise to scientists. Um, will we learn from it and change? Because otherwise it will happen again. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's, an old, that's just a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. Going through COVID, you've mentioned to me previously that you had four aims mm-hmm. of getting through that. 
what were they? Yeah, and I reflected on those four aims just last week at our staff barbecues. Um, so that one was simply the long-term survival of, of the society. As I said, we were formed in 1878. It's not going to let a pandemic kill us off. So one was survival. Yep. One was making sure that animal welfare and our focus on conservation um, continued and that we didn't have to make decisions that put animal well reduced animal welfare. One was making sure that we retained staff jobs, even though for a period people weren't getting paid, mm -hmm. but we wanted to keep everyone's job. And one was making sure our master plan dreams um, were still able to continue, so things like our new visitor centre and Wild right. Africa developments. And I'm really pleased to say we've we've achieved those four. And if I said what's next 12 months, those four are still the same. Yeah. 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 The humans and the animals really mm. is what we're looking after. Which is what our core purpose is. That is. Yeah. It is. Tell me about, this is a out there question, mm. different question, yep. but I think you'll know where I'm going with it. Can you tell me about the African painted dog? Uh, they're, they're gorgeous creatures and they, because I've always had German shepherds, so I think I have this slight affinity towards the, the African wild dogs just because they've, they've got yeah. big ears just like shepherds. But they are an amazing carnivore that really looks after their weak or their vulnerable. Mm. So um, I've heard tales from Peter Clark, who's our director at, at Monato Safari Park on his trips to, to Africa. But if there's an injured wild dog, the other members of the pack will make sure they bring food to them. They'll only go as fast as the slowest in their pack mm -hmm. can go. And it's just such unusual behaviour of um, predators and carnivores who normally yep. if there's a, there's a weak link they're out they're ostracized the absolutely and that's not the way a pack of wild dogs operate i think there's a lot of learnings humans could take from that correct which is why i asked you the question mm. i thought you'd go down that path which mm. is great how did you as a leader manage covid and the the disruption of covid and, and dealing with the with um putting people on JobKeeper, I should say, mm. um, and looking after the weakest link. How, you know, yeah. how did you fare through that time? How, how did you yeah. feel personally? Oh, I, I think, and I've openly said this to staff, I've, I've cried more and swore more <laughs> in the last 12 months than in my working career. It, it was we, we gave a commitment to information and so we were um, always transparent with, with information. We were doing uh, daily and I think for a period it was twice daily um, where I'd Luckily, we've got big outdoor spaces, so I could stand yeah. outside and sort of yell at people. Yeah. Um, and we used constructively, constructively. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so they could hear me because yeah. they were all being socially distant. Yeah. Um, and then we use uh, Workplace uh, as a tool, which like a Facebook for work, yep. which we had so that if I was at Adelaide doing the the sort of um, chat staff, the Monato staff could could see it was taped. So for people who were at home or who were not rostered, they could always see. So we always were keeping information up, even if we didn't actually have a lot of new information. They felt that they were getting regular updates, and certainly any of our post surveys, they've said it was the the honesty and the transparency that gave people confidence that we would do what we could. Uh, I've got an amazing leadership team so it was a collective we started doing morning COVID um, meetings that <laughs> can't believe we're still having um, mm. we thought it wasn't going to take very long so can I just jump in there yeah. what, what when when it was all going down mm -hmm. March April yep. last year 
What did those meetings look like? What, because I, 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 know, I remember back to my time, I was sitting around scratching my head just thinking, what, what do I do? Where were you at that point? Yeah, I was doing a lot of scratching my head. I, I think I was probably operating on about two hours sleep a night for mm. about six weeks. Um, we just kept recutting the budget numbers to see how long could how long would the cash survive because we didn't know about government supports then. Yep. Plus I was in obviously really close conversation with government so that I could try and secure some funding support. Um, and... Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of uncertainty, but at the same time, I I mean, I've, I've spent the last eight years trying to build strong relationships because we're not a government zoo; we're private. But I have put a lot of focus on creating relationships. So I I did always think in my heart of hearts, there's no way the government's going to let us just die. We know they are going to step in with some form of support. I just didn't know what that would look like. Um, so it was, yeah, it was it was pretty challenging. Um, most mornings we'd have our leadership meeting first and we'd work out what are our key messages and I'd scribble a few dot points on a post-it note because that's about all we had time to do and then I'd go down the front orientation zone and, and sort of yeah, have a, a chat, answer questions and then we would do the same thing the next day and really kept on going. And I do remember vividly, and I'll try not to cry as I tell this story because every time I've told it I do because I can I can vividly remember the emotion of the morning when we did announce that we were closing it was the 25th of March and I actually left the desk 15 minutes before not two minutes before because I wanted to just walk around and gather my thoughts and and be um, really clear with the messaging with staff and it was a beautiful March morning and it was the, the zoo in the morning is just lovely um, so we had what well, we walked into this yeah, morning it's, was it's gorgeous there was all the sounds and it's normally the sound of leaf blowers because we're getting ready to open to the public but there, to be honest the two weeks before we closed there weren't many people coming in because I think that's when the uncertainty was yep. really ramping up so I was sort of trying to gather my thoughts my phone rang it was actually the medic alert it was the ambulance. My mum had triggered her alert and they said, uh, ambulance is rushing to your mums. Can you come around and meet them? And it's like, uh, no, sorry, can't. So quickly phoned my husband, interrupted his breakfast, so he was managing that. So all in all, when I stood on, okay? on the platform, well, I did joke to my staff that, you know, 12 months on, some things haven't changed because she triggered her alert not that long ago and she's in hospital again at the oh, moment. No. Um, and I was rewriting it's a COVID plan. So <laughs> some things don't change. So I literally stood and my head was a bit spinning because I didn't actually know what, what had happened with mum. And the staff were all standing there. And I think we all knew what the announcement was going to be. They, I think it had been coming. We knew yeah. that I was I was going to be saying we are going to have to close the door. At that stage we didn't have JobKeeper, so it was going to be telling people that um, they were being stood down on no pay. And then the leadership team came and stood behind me and we hadn't scripted any of this, of course, and they, it was just like they were showing this is solidarity and it's not just you giving this message. And then the staff started cheering me. And then I definitely started crying. <laughs> and then I was getting all these beautiful messages and people were dropping me chocolates in. And then um, Deb, one of our staff, I think, came in and just said, I think you need a quokka. <laughs> so yeah. I got a little quokka to sit <laughs> on my lap <laughs> just to have a quiet moment before we then went into the one-on-ones with all the staff who were being stood down. And that was a really horrible. So, what did you say in that, um, in that moment? I, I said that we were closing the door that night, and that this would be how we would be managing the staffing, 
and that we would have one-on-one discussions with everybody over the next uh, 48 hours, That how we would manage their pay for the next sort of seven days, but after that it was on no pay. Uh, I gave them an update on the negotiations that I was having with the government and then I was very confident that we would get and then I outlined those four key aims that said yeah. that's really what... And then it was more about encouraging people to look after each other. Um, For a lot of our staff, we'd already stood down our volunteers and we've got a really passionate Mm. volunteer base. For a lot of our staff, and and they were all thanking the keeping staff, were encouraged to, you know, take photos and videos so that they could, we could put that on workplace so that those staff who couldn't come into work were able to feel that they were still part of the place and, and still getting connected. Um, so there's a really strong camaraderie among our team That's of great. people uh, and a lot of personal supports and, and, you know, down to people set up on workplace, um, like almost like a marketplace if if you need toilet paper, which was one of the <laughs> other funny things because I actually did um, – <laughs> My husband normally the does toilet, all the shopping. So. I don't do any shopping. And I got a, a note in the middle of the toilet paper pen rush, which I still can't get my head around. <laughs> and some friends of our dear friends of ours live in Thailand. And uh, I got a note uh, saying, can you drop some toilet paper into her parents who are 94 and had been walking the streets of Adelaide trying to buy toilet paper oh, no. and couldn't find any. So, of course, I said, yeah, sure, we'll drop in because we didn't. We only had two rolls. I gave them away and then thought. So, but oh. our staff, <laughs> I next came in. There's plenty of leaves out there. Our staff were bringing in stuff to help each yeah. other. So, um, so I did get a donation of some toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Getting up in front of everyone mm-hmm. and delivering that would have been, I, I, I can almost feel the sick feeling in my stomach that you would have, mm. you would have felt getting yeah. up in front of them. How uh, I think what is sort of left on the table for a lot of people that don't realise is how confronting and how vulnerable people can mm-hmm. be, You, especially leaders that can be in that situation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me your thought process leading into that? What, what, Where were you at mentally leading uh, into that address? Yeah, it is, it is really, really challenging and because you do feel the weight of responsibility um, and I think I felt it most critically on that morning and for the next two days as we had those discussions because you, and especially some of our staff, it's, it's um, husband and wife, both work at the zoo. Yeah. Um, and so you know that there's real financial challenge that kids are going to face yeah, kids, all of yeah. that. So, yes, you do feel and I, I guess for me, I'm you know I'm stubborn. Some people call it resilience. I think I just I think I'm just stubborn. Um, we were going to get through this. I knew we were going to get through this. Um, and so it was, it's that fine line between all. I mean, it's always telling the truth and, and being transparent, but at the same time giving a sense of confidence for the future. And that's hard to do in some of these times when I don't have that clear picture of the future. But I had to give enough of a sense of certainty that, you know, the government is not going to let us fail. Yes, I don't yet have what the details of the funding support package is, but we will get it. Like I am not – and they all knew that. They knew that we would find a way because I think at the core they do trust me. And um, so they – yeah, it was trying to be open about how challenging it is and not – I didn't want people to be in you know, rose-coloured and think it's all going to be yeah, sweet. Right. But at the same time, I don't want people being totally full of despair. So that was challenging. It's finding that Goldilocks So it's, it's that sort of balance. And I think the staff could see, because I was emotional, um, 
they knew, which I get, especially when I'm tired, haven't eaten properly, you know, all of those things. <laughs> Two hours sleep's um, not good. So yeah. they they knew that we had their backs and we were as a as yeah. a total leadership team and, and support of our board, we would we would try our very, very best to support and keep everybody's job. And then I think it was the next tough one was in May when we were trying to get reopened and <laughs> trying to get the approval to open. And things were starting to open up. I think pubs and restaurants were all opening up. And I'm still thinking, we've got an outdoor venue I can't get open. Mm. And the frustration was pretty strong. So there was a few of those moments that, um, yeah, tested the patience a a little bit. So you talked about having a relationship with Stephen Marshall and the, Mm. and the, um, the Libs. You and I have talked offline how you have built that relationship over many years, mm-hmm. authentically, right, and I think obviously yep. untoward, but, yeah, authentically built a, a great uh, friendship and, and um, relationship with Stephen and the team. Did that pay off for you, that relationship in the years of, of, of giving, pay off for you over the time? Yeah, look, I think definitely, and, and we're an apolitical organisation, it's one of our intents, um, so we work really closely with government. We work with all parties. Um, but I th- I think the fact that we've been working closely with the government for the last number of years, you know, I could pick up the phone and talk to the Chief Executive of the Department of Treasury who was fabulous, couldn't always give me the answers that I wanted, but at least I always had a contact point and he was always willing to take the call and give me updates. Could do the same with Department of Premier and Cabinet talk to Nicola Spurrier and her team in health. You know, even for the last 12 months I'd, I'd do a monthly update to the Chief Executive of Department of Environment and Treasury just saying this is how the zoo's going, good, bad, indifferent, they get to hear just where we're at uh, and that goes to the Minister as well. So the intent is, is I guess I could leverage the fact that they knew what we were doing and I'd always given the commitment that we would not draw a cent more than we needed from government support I mean, we actually, we've had some funny discussions with our leadership team over the the last year because there's a number of strategies when you're trying to work out the whole JobKeeper and Austrade funding. And, you know, at one stage we probably would have been financially better off to sit back and just take it easy and not chase revenue because then you're more likely to be eligible to get JobKeeper for the next three months because you can meet the the 30% reductions, et cetera. And that was never our – we just said our model was go for broke. We're going to chase every single cent of of revenue that we can and we're going to trim every form of expenditure that we can. If we still have a gap and need government support, we will ask for it, but I can do that feeling really honest to the taxpayers and the government but that, done, that we've done absolutely everything and, and I'm not kidding, literally everything as far as expenditure and revenue to make sure that we're asking for the least amount possible because I am going to have to ask them for more money for future developments in the future and mm. so I'm thinking that long term um, and I, I can be really confident in saying that to them. Brilliant. You mentioned uh, other zoos around the world. Mm-hmm. Where are they all at now? Are they... Uh, look, other zoos around, in fact, even around Australia, there's still some that are challenged. Those that are more reliant on international tourists obviously are still feeling uh, the gap. Northern Queensland, very reliant generally on, on international tourism. Um, and then Taronga in Sydney has a lot of international tourism. Now yeah. they've New South Wales got the floods to deal with. But I said at least we've got good government supports. Uh, zoos in the UK are doing it really 
tough because mm. they've, and I know this well, our daughter lives in London, so I know just how long the restrictions have been going. Uh, and there hasn't been a lot of success with zoos getting a lot of government support. So, and I think that's the same through Europe, um, America. There's been some really, really strong, well-established, well-resourced zoos like Singapore, San Diego, uh, London, who all have been doing amazing conservation work for years and years and years that have been really severely hit and, and are letting a lot of good staff go because they have to. Um, they're stopping some of their international conservation projects because they have to. Um, so it's, yeah, we feel lucky with the support we've had in Australia, um, but I think there's going to be impacts that we see for the next couple of years as some zoos come out of this and I think sadly some might not. So what I, that I think was where I was going with this question is that some unfortunately may not see the future what does that mean for the animals and where do they go zoos operate especially for our um, endangered animals we have stud books so uh, it's 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 a quite a controlled managed process mm -hmm. and so if another if a zoo had to close there would be a review of their species and who might be able to hold them who's got capacity to hold them uh, how we do the transfers would be really challenging. Yeah. So at the moment, uh, we there's a lot of animals we can't bring into Australia. So we're involved in a, in a big um, project to bring about 30 southern white rhinos from Africa to, to form an insurance population in Australia. Uh, as a moment, we can't bring rhinos from Africa. They need to go to New Zealand, do 12 months quarantine in New Zealand, and then they come to their quarantine here. What's the reason for that? Uh, rhinos can carry bovine tuberculosis, and the Australian government doesn't want bovine TB to get into the... the um, but so New Zealand's are right with that? But when... There have been cases of bovine TB in New Zealand already as a country. Now, the reality is we would never want bovine TB in our animal collection no. and it's unlikely that a rhino would ever mix with a cow because <laughs> we're yeah. pretty good at keeping them in. Um, but that's just the rules. Same way we, we can't bring birds into Australia, can't bring giraffes in, can't bring hippos in. We've got very, very strict quarantine rules in Australia. So even without COVID, it's challenging. But add COVID into the mix of, you know, if we wanted to bring rhinos from Africa, normally we would send a keeper and a vet to... Yep. test them and then accompany them but at the moment you can't bring anybody back from africa people wise so not even in two-week quarantine no no so okay. yes yeah, so it does make some of those conservation projects even more challenging we had some lemurs that were due to come from america last so, year so meanwhile what happens to these animals when they're in at, limbo at the moment they're still being held we've got partners in africa okay. and they're doing fine okay. they're quite remote in africa well, that's good i thought um, it was not leaving so no they, they're just they're very desperate to have the rhinos in a safe home because there's still a lot of poaching happening in africa so we're not giving up on the project it's just it was always challenging it's just got a little bit more challenging so you're very passionate about mm -hmm. the environment, which is yep. amazing to, and very refreshing to listen to. And you're active in your discussions about how we can create a better world for all us, for all of us, and and you know the future generations. Can you tell us what is what's your big one of your biggest concerns for us where we're going right now? Oh, look, I've got a few. <laughs> Maybe as you get older, you get more. Um, I, I get quite concerned 
And if you look in Australia, but I think it's happening around the globe, the gap between those who are doing well and those who aren't in an equitable world should be narrowing. But I think I've actually seen that increasing and trying to think about what does that mean if you try and envisage the community in 10, 20, 30 years' time when, you know, it seems to be such a big determinant of whether you're going to do well and that can be from a health reason or from um, a whole range of reasons can come down to as simple as what suburb you're born in, what school your parents are able to send you to, and that then has lifelong implications. And that just really, really worries me that we've we've created a community that allows that to happen quo, yeah. and drives that even more. Um, so how, how do we try and change that? And the other thing that worries me is, is the almost a lack of a community that encourages personal accountability and ownership of issues. It, it's almost like people just, if you look at, you know, 90% of seabirds have got plastic in them. Well, why is that? And it's because humans are disposing of plastics. Well, we can change that behaviour really quickly. So why aren't we? So what is it? It's, it's almost like it's a selfish approach to, to life mm. rather than thinking about our, our place in the planet and what we can do to make it better. So who's who's mentoring the younger people? Who's encouraging that, I guess, accountability but also creativity, innovation to go forward and make the world a better place for humans and, in my mind, and thinking for animals and, and the environment. But So what is the, I mean, I, I say obviously, and that's probably a naive term or ignorant term, the, we can't ban plastics in general, can we? Uh, we can get rid of an awful lot of them. So single-use plastics, and South Australia is great. I mean, South We're Australia leading is way, leading yes. the way in this, and it's it's fabulous to see again. And, and we, although I don't like the wooden spoon that you get, I'm not, not going <laughs> to. No, not. but but again, you can sort of say again. And the, if, if and, you, the, and the paper straw throws. If, me if you think, and that's almost you, you, <laughs> if anyone talks to someone who grew up in the forties, like well, they didn't have plastic spoons then. What mm. did you do? How did how did people? Yeah. You know, the idea of going to the shops and everybody has to have a plastic bag. You used to take your own, or you had a cardboard yeah. box, and you picked up your fruit in the cardboard box, you know, and then you used it again the following week. You know, you can have a, a cutlery that you take with you. Mm. You don't need to have throw away plastic, everything. Yeah. You know, plastics, when it came out, was seen as something that was going to revolutionise the world, and it has, sadly. Um, and there will always be some need. You know, it does create, um, you know, our vet centre will use plastics, mm. but then it's thinking about how do you dispose of those plastics mm. and putting a bit of pressure on, I mean, consumers. Zoos can. We made a difference with zoos. We had some of our plush toys that get sold in the retail shop got sent to us and packaged in these really heavy um, plastics that wasn't recyclable. And we just said we're not buying anymore unless you change. But we actually worked with our partners in other zoos uh, to go to the same supplier because we always buy pretty much from the same place and we all gave them the same message. Well, they were going to lose all the zoo clients. Yeah. All of a sudden that consumer voice meant they changed their packaging. So, yeah, so we, that, so we so can drive behaviour yeah. um, if we if we can see that it's important enough. And that there is living to your values right there, Absolutely. Isn't it? Absolutely it is. So plastics is one thing mm -hmm. that you would do. Yeah. What's next? 
I think if you look, humans are taking too much space on the planet. We need to have more area for rewilding, we call it, so for bringing species back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's in the seas as well. Um, a lot of people don't quite see the devastations that being caused in the ocean through, you know, mass catchments and all of that sort of stuff. So I think uh, humans encroaching a little less mm. would make a difference. I think energy and and how we, I mean, the whole climate change debate and, you know, you can get into a whole lot of what I think are really pointless arguments because to me it's a bit of a distractor. Do humans cause climate change? Personally, I think very clearly. But whether or not they did or didn't, it's sort of irrelevant now. Like the climate is changing. You, you, You just look at the maths and the science and climate is changing all around the world. The cause is almost, as I said, it almost distracts the issue yeah. rather than it's changing. So what do we do about yeah. it? Yeah, so w- what is and causing the change and how do we minimise the effect on it? Absolutely. And and those sort of, and, and in some ways, that, that, I mean, they become serious policy debates and you know, the political cycle doesn't perhaps, but politicians will do what they think will get them elected. That's why they go into politics. So if they... If the community let the politicians know that this is important, then it will become a policy. Important, yeah. So it's it's how do we generate that? Because that groundswell from the community. I mean, we're seeing it now with you know the treatment of women. It's starting to get that um, level of focus that people are taking action. Might have been. 30 years too late, but at least now yeah. it's got to that point where there is some action being taken, hopefully. Um, oh, well, yeah, I think you'll just continue to see more and more cases rise, especially if you can pull up cases that happened 20 years ago. We're going to see a few yes. a few white men particularly yeah. in trouble and, in and high you positions. Know, I, I started working in a banking and finance industry, which was very male-dominated. Luckily, I, I grew up with three brothers, so, you know, I'm not going to cop too much. But there was some shocking behaviour. Mm. Um, and you just, I find it horrific to think that it's still happening. Mm. You think it, it just, no, it's yeah, not. it boggles my mind really. And some of it's not. Um, it, it's... Yeah, some's very overt and just not appropriate to treat anyone in the workplace that way. But some is more just that underlying discrimination behaviour. My daughter gave the story. She moved to London six, seven years ago and she said when she was in the sort of kitchen area and someone saw her as a young Australian, you're the novelty, oh, did you move here with, with your husband was the question. And she just sort of reflected and said if she was a young male, would that question ever have been asked? Mm. And yet it's just as likely. So I think we've yeah. got quite a long way to go. I agree. She was polite in her I think answer, that's it's good. not only just um, from a male-female perspective, it's from a diversity point of view. Oh, I, absolutely. I, uh, I had this conversation. I won't name his name. Um, he's a guy I catch up with quite regularly and I think it was the first time that we caught caught up. And this is an own personal story, right? So first time we caught up, we got chatting. And um, started chatting, chatting, chatting. And I think generally a, conver- a question I ask, well, I used to ask, was, you know, where are you from? Mm-hmm. You know, what's your background, all that sort of stuff. It was just a general way of understanding, yep. right? 
um, which is a common South Australian thing I've learned. What school did you go <laughs> yeah, to? Yeah, what yes. school did you go to? Um, so I asked this gentleman, you know, what's your background? And he said, I'm Australian. And I said, no, no, like your cultural heritage and all, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Like where's your family from? He's like, well, we moved here from Nigeria 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, But we're Australian. Yeah. And then I said, okay. So I kind of knew where he was going. And then he said, um, he goes, look, I'm stuffing around with you. Like I'm just, I'm trying to get into your head. But he goes, but if I was white, you wouldn't have asked that question. Mm. And I thought. That is such, it was such a revelation for me yeah. in the sense that you're right, I wouldn't have and I don't. And so um, that is a question that I've stopped and that was a couple of years ago now. But but that's, um, but that's good that he he challenged you. Absolutely. He might have been messing with you but he's created that awareness. question and awareness yeah, now and I think that's what's needed absolutely. is just simply to create the awareness. You don't need to make a really big deal of it. I, I always remember years and years ago when I was in the bank and, one particular manager used to always call me sweetie, and, mm. you know, just drive me up the wall. So yeah. I just started calling him darling every time he called me <laughs> sweetie. And he sort of looked at me oddly the first time I did it. And then because he just, he honestly didn't notice, and he didn't mean anything yeah. um, bad by it. It was just a habit that he'd had for many, many years and it just needed awareness raising in a fairly lighthearted way. And he stopped. Yeah. So, but you're right. I think um, it's, it's gender, it's, it's broader diversity, age, you know, making sure that we've got, um, I was just a joke in the public sector, that there weren't many young executives in the public sector and yet you've got young, smart people running multi-billion dollar companies in the mm. private sector. The public sector is full of really smart people but it was almost like the recruitment process forced you to go Stuck. step by step by step so yeah. you had to be a certain age before. Yeah. and that sort of thing you just think there's all that untapped potential that could make some amazing difference absolutely yeah mm. I, yes that's another another <laughs> rabbit hole maybe we go that podcast too <laughs> that we're talking about you have been quoted as saying despite of the, all the obvious change of this scene it seems to it seems to me that we're still not listening to the signs what what are those signs that you're talking about well i think and, and you know, it's been really fascinating listening to the the community discussion with COVID, and everybody, particularly politicians and the media, saying we're listening to the scientists and we're making and that we're listening to the health experts. And and you know, I think Australia's done that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say, so what's different about climate change or biodiversity? You know, extinction uh, challenges when the science is presenting all of this same scientific and yet the political decisions are made it appears to be at a distance to that so why has it been different (laughs) why has it been different and how can we learn from that and try and encourage the politicians to listen to the scientists always i don't know the answer to that um i think they listened to the scientists this time maybe because they thought there was personal threat or risk but Climate change has got the same level of risk. It's got the same economic impact. Um, but I think it's not as immediate. I think yeah. that's part of it is it's it's seen as being something that is not going to impact maybe in this electoral cycle and so it can be put off. But I don't know, and if people read David Attenborough's book, it can't be put off for too much Well, this longer. is the thing. Look, from a marketing perspective, uh, you know, people um, – 
and I don't really ever want to bring him up, but people bag Donald Trump, right? But he was a really good marketer. He, he found his niche market and he went after that. So yep. I think the millennials coming through, uh, you know, we got people born in 2021 this year, right? So th- this is a scary thing to actually think about. The millennials coming through uh, grew up with David Attenborough on their screen, yep. right? So they're going to be big followers. And not only him, but they, they grew up. They're growing up and they're more environmentally conscious based on yep. what they've been taught at schools, obviously the programs that you run, all, all the above. Um, and I think so- in part that's also the, the blending of policies and, and you know, I've, I've sometimes looked at um, environmental policies and they don't have the economic argument that goes with it. And I, I think if you're presenting anything to the community it has to have the social, the economic, and the environmental. Absolutely. Looking at them, I think sometimes the the environmental movement hasn't done itself any favours because it'll present this is what we need for the environment, but everybody then says, but that's going to be too expensive or that's going to have this impact. Mm. So I think it's it needs to be a much more holistic argument um, because, yeah, environmental policies, if they're implemented correctly, can be economically viable oh, without, a doubt. without a doubt. And we see that in energy use or water yeah. use, et cetera. So that being said, what is your advice to leaders of, you know, your co-leaders your co, uh, um, leaders in, in the same level, CEOs and the like, C- C-suite, what can we do from an environmental perspective? I think having, I mean, we at the zoo we tend to use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the mm-hmm. 17 SDGs. Yes. And I think we're starting to see some large businesses using those. But I think every business operator should look at those and say, in my area of operations, how can I impact on that? So what are they, the 17? 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So they were put out by the United Nations, developed in a holistic way with Mm -hmm. governments but with industry, et cetera. And they'll have things like no poverty. And that might seem like a really big goal, but I know when we did this from a zoo perspective, what can we do to assist with that? Mm. And even simple things, so if we're um, sending funds to Africa to some of our conservation partners, we try and design the programs in a way that is going to reduce poverty in Africa because if we reduce poverty in Africa, people are less likely to feel the need to poach animals so that they can feed their family. So our focus is about getting a a better conservation outcome for animals, but there's a number of ways of doing that. And I Mm. think the SDGs give the Sustainable Development Goals give a really nice framework that any business can think about and start somewhere. You know, it doesn't have to be all 17 and changing your business model completely, but if every single business made one change, then collectively that can be quite significant. Well, I love your example of the palm oil, for example, mm-hmm. uh, was one of the first ones yep. and then the fluffy animals uh, in the packaging. packaging yep. It just It's about calling it out and um, if your suppliers are doing things that uh, – don't aren't aligned with your values. It's yep. have that conversation with them if if they don't uh, and, and if, being realistic with them. So you know we've talked to our catering partners and and particularly during COVID, you know they do have food safety responsibilities. Correct. So you know that the sauce bottle um, doesn't meet the COVID plan. So we go they go back to the little horrible plastic sauce containers, which we hate. They hate, but we accept 
that we are in yeah. different difficult times. But I think if you partner, so we're partnering with our caterers and we're not expecting them to change everything, you know, straight away. No, but we want but to they see know it. that we need yeah. to keep improving because otherwise we will work with other partners to help us achieve that. Absolutely. So. Well, it's a putting a plan in action that we will yeah. see this. Uh, and our catering big, partners, I must say, have been fabulous. They're really yeah, personally committed to driving what change they can. So we're empowering other leaders mm-hmm. to look at those 17 yep. um, sustainability items on the UN. Is it something that they should – this is the thing. Like, there's obviously big business, right, and making drastic changes straight away could mm-hmm. definitely affect the yep. shareholders and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the return on investment and all that sort of stuff. So how, how do we go about it? Do we start small or do we go big straight away? I'd, look, I'd encourage everybody just to start. Yeah. Um, that's the most important thing, so get, just to just start. Just start thinking about it, introducing and, into your meetings and, and board meetings. And I think it's meetings. also a, about an employment strategy. And I think you mentioned, Daniel, younger people are generally more environmentally focused and they will make decisions about who they want to work with based on does it fit with their value set. And I think we'll see that more and more. So you know, talking to, to big business, it's about thinking about the value of your brand and, and no matter what business you're in, your brand equity is really critically mm-hmm. important to, to shareholder value. Um, good employers, so can, have, have, can you attract the very best and brightest in the field, is part of that. Um, so and I think that goes across every industry sector. Mm. Um, and so, Again, thinking longer term about shareholder value, and it's not the shareholder value necessarily for tomorrow, but what's the shareholder value going to be in a year, five years, ten years? Yeah, long term. And yeah. the more you can build your brand equity and, and value, the better off your shareholder return is going to be. And then, of course, we can always encourage every business to be a corporate partner of Zoos SA and that <laughs> helps us achieve what we yeah. want to do. But, you know, we've, we've got some great corporate partners and they love when we tell stories to their staff. So at the moment, for example, we've got Beach Energy supporting our Southern White Rhino project. And so naming the little young um, rhino baby, we put suggestions to their staff to come up with names. I mean, then we picked the winner and those staff came up and they were there for the big unveiling. And that was a huge engagement yeah, for those people. So that is that is definitely a reason for I want to be can I name one? <laughs> Everyone wants to name baby animals. <laughs> it's funny because we talk about the, the the millennials coming through and being very environmentally conscious. I think about the younger generation and my children, I've mentioned to them in nine and seven and, and you see the a lot of the young the, the children at that age. Yes, they love the animals, but they're very. They're also into technology. Yep. Uh, sometimes too much. Now, does that? Do are you concerned that with the rise of PlayStations, iPads, all these gaming uh, and tech that that is out at the moment, mm-hmm. that children are going to be less exposed to? Yes, Annie, I, I used to sit on a board Nature Play SA, mm-hmm. which was sort of weird that you had to have an organisation that was encouraging children to go outside to and play. But it was, it's a formal yeah. global movement of nature play because there's been some really interesting stats if you go back over a couple of generations of you know, what they call it the roam distance, you know, for a nine or a seven-year-old, like your children. If, if you think when you were nine, how far were you able to roam from your home without parents there? And then if you go back 
to your parents, how far were they able to? And that roam distance has shrunk dramatically. I mean, I was lucky we grew up in Athelston. We had Black Hill behind us. Yeah. And we, you know, on the weekend, we would just be out yeah. and, and come back when it was I, dark. I, I remember playing a game with my, my mate across the road. We would go out on our bikes down by the creek and try to get lost. Yep. Like as in like and just try to figure our way back home. And yeah. it was the most but, fun But you were learning apart from physical activity, which is, you know, we know yeah. it's good for people's health, yeah, um, you were also learning problem solving because if you got lost, you got to yeah. – and you didn't have a mobile and phone, mobile you know, phone, all that yeah. sort of stuff. So, I mean, there's a whole yeah. lot of statistics about the benefit of kids being out in nature and learning just to appreciate nature but also it builds resilience and health, et cetera, et cetera. So it is concerning but I don't think we could ignore the fact that technology can also do wonderful you things. Can, yeah. um, so we try and, and, and um, one of my staff actually had won a Churchill Fellowship to travel um, last year uh, around the world and look at how cultural organisations like museums and zoos, et cetera, are using technology to better connect people with their purpose and their mission. Oh, yeah. Sadly, of course, with COVID, can't travel anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's how do you how do you blend the two? Mm. But, yes, I think getting people out in nature is a really – and, as I said, it's, it's proven. It's got health benefits. It's got a whole range of benefits. And at least as a start point, if it's coming to a zoo which is in nature but it's got a gate, a fence around it so the child doesn't get lost, that might be the first step for some parents. Yeah, so. at least in the backyard. Yeah, at least the backyard, the local park. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. Softly, softly, try and encourage a wider movement. So we're coming up to the, the close uh, shortly. What's in store for Zoos SA for the next five years? Uh, look, there's a number of things in store and I, some might get a little bit dented depending on our recovery from COVID. For Monato, obviously, it's opening the new visitor, visitor centre. Center. and then That's f- by the end of this year. You're looking at the it. formal contract with the builder is for handover in February, yeah, so but push, they push all know that I want it by yeah. the beginning of December. And, and I must say they're doing the most, so they're yeah, on yeah. site at like 4.30 in the morning pouring concrete under uh, lights, so yeah, they yeah. are working really hard. Um, so that will open at, at the latest by February, hopefully earlier. Then the accommodation hopefully opening about October in 22. 22, yeah. Um, so that building, let's break ground on that next month. Brilliant. Um, so that's the really big ones for Monato. For Adelaide, we've – and hopefully the rhinos arriving. So it's a project that's been a long time so 30 coming. So rhinos. Yeah, we'll need to bring them in so groups of 10. Uh, so the first batch of 10, the plan is that two would stay in New Zealand to be part of the breeding program there. Eight would come to us, uh, but three of those would end up in Western Plains Zoo at Dubbo. And then the next group of 10 would come over. They'd all come to Monato and then the next group of 10 because they do weigh a bit to put on a frame, yeah, on a plane, yeah. two tonnes each. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, it's an expensive it's and logistical. Right leg, it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's sort of the key for Monato. But we're also at Monato involved in um, some native animals. So we're doing um, breeding of small Australian um, animals so that we can rewild the Southern York Peninsula, which has had a, a, a fence put across, you know, if you know this, geography of York Peninsula, the fence is going across the boot and then we'll eventually go up to the ankle and then up to the knee and we will start introducing animals that we've been breeding 
back into so is that, that right? local I habitat. Actually, I didn't know that. Yeah. So Marion Bay and they're like these. Yeah, all... so it's, it's been a, a project. There's a number of partners involved. Um, the, the government, the, the NRM land, landscape. Um, it's a beautiful boards. part down there. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Really. So I mean, people will still be able to drive through. Good. It's not trying to turn the whole thing into a national park, but it will. Um, significantly reduce the number of feral animals and therefore okay. allow the native animals just to repopulate that area. Is that removing all the, the housing that's there? No, 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 no. That will all stay. So the intent is not at all to interrupt farming or um, tourism. In fact, it's actually to grow tourism because it will be even more beautiful than it already right. is um, once you've got it it's regenerated. Yeah. Um, so we're involved in breeding programs at Monato for um, that project. For Adelaide, uh, the next major project subject to getting funding support, uh, we built a new children's zoo at the end of 2019 with uh, Variety as a partnership. That's freed up an area at the back of the zoo. So you built the children's zoo? The new children's zoo was in partnership with Variety, the children's charity. Yep. Um, so no, We've had a partnership. Where is that? Um, down near the playground area. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, so that opened up a few months yeah, before we closed. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> So. Um, but that then freed up the land that the old children's zoo is in and our plan is to move all of our, our really critically important operations, so our food store, hay shed, uh, yeah. assets, workshops, etc. They're currently on the um, area behind the giraffe house which backs onto the river. So if you walk along the riverbank and look into the zoo at the moment, it's not the best look, really. You just see old sheds because it is our old yeah. works area. So the aim is to build a new facility for our food store and then free up that whole riverbank area from Frome Road right the way around to significantly expand our giraffe and African animal area. So we're finalising plans for that. I should get the final plans this week and costings. We don't have any money for that project yet, but you've got to have the plans and then I'll be starting to chase for funding for that one. So Superb. that's yeah, that's Exciting. probably the next one. But there's always keep, we've got keep. to redo the koala area. There's always things. Oh, that we there's need always to do. the general upgrades and operations yes. and stuff like yeah. that. And then eventually redo our lion facility here, but that's a bit more expensive. We'll get to that. Yeah. And so, then I'll and then I'll retire and sit on a beach somewhere. Why not? When we can travel again. When we can travel again, yeah, yes. Right. Where would you retire? Where? Um, the current thinking is either Spain or France because if I stayed in Adelaide, I'd just keep working. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's very true. And our daughter but we lives, don't want to lose you. Our daughter lives in London and okay, I hate that so. long flight. So at least it might not be full retirement but at least 10 years' worth of um, travel. Yeah. So I'm trying to learn Spanish. My husband's trying to learn French and wherever we end up, one of us Finger might be able to muddle through yeah. with a little bit of language. But there's a few things still to finish off on the list here before that happens. Yes, please don't retire anytime soon. I say that selfishly. Right, you can do whatever you want. No. But I say for the people of South Australia, we've no. been, I think got I a like little, you. a little bit, a little bit more in me. <laughs> That's right. As long as there's not too many more global pandemics. I said to the team last week, I said, "God, I don't know if I can do another twelve months of this. It's no. too hard." If there's another but, one, I think we're all quitting. I yeah, mean. <laughs> and of course we're not. You just have a day where you feel like that, and then you just sort of yeah. dust yourself off and think, "Okay, we'll manage this." Yeah, there was a whole host of questions. We've we've gone way over. There was a whole host of That's questions right. that uh, I was going to ask you about that and about leaders, but we'll, maybe we'll have to get you back again. I've <laughs> mentioned that a few times. We'll see. Yeah. Look, as part of the podcast, we're big readers and big learners here at Creating Synergy. Mm -hmm. We re and you we we talk about books a lot, 
Um, you've mentioned the David Attenborough book is definitely one that we should read. Is there yep. any other book that you believe would be influential to us in learning about some of the um, environmental and sustainability aspects of the I world? Mean, David Attenborough is definitely, I think it's the most succinct summary of the challenges of the world mm -hmm. at the moment, but not just challenges but also actions that can yeah. be taken. As I said, it's almost split in two halves. Yeah, and the first half when you get through it is pretty depressing, but the second half is more action-focused. Um, I'm always a, a big um, believer in anything Jane Goodall does, yeah. uh, both podcasts and her books. They're just uh, amazing. And then, I mean, I go back into really, really early ones, you know, the seven habits of highly effective oh. people. I think it still really stands really true. Um, it's one whenever I mentor people, I always encourage them to read. And then one that I, it's a very old one is by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. My favourite book. Yeah, which, you know, when you talk about responsibility and the ability to choose how you respond, if, you know, if you can respond in such a humane, dignified way when you're in that sort of circumstance, then there's absolutely no excuse for anyone not responding with dignity and respect in any circumstance. So, yeah, that's a, a long time deep my favourite book. book. I read it hundred oh, not hundred times. I read it yeah. ten plus times. I absolutely love it. It's very, very powerful. What's one item other than moving to Spain and France and uh, what's one item on your bucket list? Oh. I've got lots. <laughs> <laughs> from a zoo point of view. <laughs> actually, it doesn't have to be just okay because I do have my retirement hit list on, which is yeah, had a bit of a dent because paying off the debt was always the number all right, one so thing. So let's make like, what's one God. of your interesting items personally, personally on the, on the bucket list. Um, it probably is the, the travel. There's so many cultures that I have. We feel we haven't really been to. You know, I've we've travelled fairly extensively, but. Being able to really immerse in a different culture. Mm. It's, you know, people sometimes ask what regrets I've had in my career. And I used to think it was that I didn't get into zoos earlier, but I don't think that's true because I couldn't have done the job yeah. if I hadn't done the other jobs that I had done. Um, but I, I think one of them is that I've never worked overseas because I think that would just give a very different perspective, whereas when you're on holiday you see things quite differently. Mm. Um, so the chance to really immerse and learn deeply about other cultures is probably the key thing that I want to do in the future. Yeah, that's, yes, I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. If you had access to a time machine and you had a one-way trip, uh, sorry, two-way trip, <laughs> not one-way trip. I keep saying one-way trip. You had a two-way two trip. Forward or back, where would you go? Oh, God, that's a really challenging question. Mm. Personally, I would probably not go back very far. I'd like to have another day with my dad. Okay. Mm. How long ago did he pass? Nearly 10 years. Okay. So go back earlier or go back? Uh, oh, no, just, yeah, just spend, just spend another day just with Just another him. day yeah. with him, have a conversation mm. with him. Yeah, like that. Mm. If you had a, Or I'd go back and see King Alexander's horse Bucephalus. Oh, okay. You know, that would be pretty cool. That would be. Yeah, just because he was a beautiful horse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or sit and have a chat with Will Shakespeare. Oh, God, there's so many. Yeah, there, is, could, there uh, is. That's really hard. You wouldn't go forward. Um, everyone would go back. Everyone goes back. Would you go forward? Like I, I kind of bum that I don't see what's see what's going to happen. Like you know, 
you doing yeah. all this conversation stuff. It was, um, did I say that? I didn't say that yeah, right. Yeah, I'm not sure I have, and that's a bit sad to say, but I don't know if I've got enough confidence in the world that I'd like to see it. Oh, that's heavy. Mm. Yeah, I know what you're coming from, mm. though. I, yes, money yeah. and power can do strange things. Mm. Yeah. Do you think we'll lots have, of places actually, going back. This is not part of the rapid fire questions, <laughs> but do you ever think, do you ever honestly believe that we'll see a world where that kangaroo doesn't exist or we see animals that aren't around? Yeah, because sadly it's happening today. There are animals going extinct But will we, get it, let, will we let it get to the extreme? Oh, it is extreme now, I should say. Will we let it get to... Will we let it get worse? Will, it, will we let it continue, really? Because if you say that you know, one in four, and I'm really talking mammals, but then you look at insects and they're in even mm. more trouble, um, it's happening now and it's accelerating. So unless something changes quickly, then I think there will continue to be a lot more species going extinct. I mean, Australia could make a really big difference... South Australia could make a really big difference very quickly by getting feral cats under control. And that's starting to happen, but not, you know, if you look at when I grew up, dogs used to sort of, like you know, pet dogs used to run up. My, my dog used to wander down the street when we all went to primary school. He would just walk down <laughs> with us and then he'd find his way home and stop and have his favorite places that he'd stop in on the way and get fed. And that's what happened. Most Places in South Australia, then there weren't a lot of fencing. You know that mm. that's now would be seen as totally unacceptable if mm. you own a pet dog. It's registered and it's controlled but and yeah, it's in this fence. That. And you sort of think, why haven't we moved forward to cat ownership with the same thing with registration and a need not to have it roam? Because cats kill, and you know people will say their cat doesn't. Um, all of the science again will show that your cat does. Mm. If you if you put a tracking collar on it, it will travel oh, quite widely. I had one. It used to bring me home presents on my back doormat. Yes, yeah, yeah. quite regularly. And that they're the ones that I guess people see with a bird, mm. but they're also killing a lot of um, reptiles. Mm. So how can we move? And I think we will see it. I think we're starting to see yeah, some yeah. councils making the move to cat registrations and things like that, making sure that they at least stay inside at night. So how do we change that headset about what being a responsible cat owner looks like, mm. the same as you would be seen as a really dreadful dog owner if you allowed that to happen. Yeah. But at the moment people sort of think the opposite with cat ownership. But that simple change would make an enormous difference to wildlife in Australia. And to me, that's a really easy one to it achieve. Is. I didn't um, realise that. Keep your cat yeah. in at night. You know, that's that's pretty simple. The cat's safer. It's less likely to be hit by a car or, you know. So it's better for wildlife, better for cats. So You sleep better because they're all fighting outside too. All, <laughs> the amount of times I've, I don't have a cat anymore, but the amount of times I had one. Uh, and I say that fast. as a cat, I yeah. do have a dog yeah. and a cat, and, but the cat is never out at night. Yeah. So. Yeah, but, my well, my. So this was probably three years ago. My cat ran off, mm -hmm. never came back. Yeah, yeah and so. that's the thing. It's and so that's the that's what we're trying to stop. Yeah, that's what I, we're trying to stop. I'm and and as I said, it's it's safer for it, 
people are better, more responsible cat owners if they keep their cat in. Mm. It's it's better for the cat because yeah. they're unlikely to, to run off or be hit by a car or whatever, but it's yeah. much better for wildlife. So, you know, there are some changes that we could make really quickly. Absolutely. Others are much more challenging because, you know, things like poaching, it's tied up in a whole lot of social and economic um, issues that are harder and more entrenched. So some is a long-term game and some can be quick wins. Brilliant. I reckon we'll end it there. Cool. Thank you very much. It's been an amazing chat learning more about you and your journey and especially over the past 12 months. So thank you very much for your time today. Cool. Where can we find you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best contact. LinkedIn is the best way. Yep. We use LinkedIn very regularly as a communication tool both personally and for the zoo. Does you have a blog or anything that you write for? I do occasionally write um, articles in my LinkedIn. So we've got Zoo's SA has got a LinkedIn, but I've got yep. a private, a personal one as well. I'm not sure if that's been sent no, to you, but we, we can, can make share sure we've got we'll that. Absolutely, you can share that because uh, I think I've now got more followers than the Zoo's SA one. It's a really interesting dynamic. People are people follow, follow people, people yeah. on on LinkedIn, and our fabulous PR manager actually ran a training upskilling for all us oldies on how to use um, our own LinkedIn to create personal profiles to do Zoo's SA work because yeah. people follow people. Yeah, they do. So we're yeah. all trying to learn that. Beautiful. So thank Continue you very much. Continue learning. It is. It, Technology. Yeah, I think we're going through the same thing at the moment. We feel like uh, everyone's following us and not the, the, the page. Which is, and, it's which yeah. is true. So, is. yeah, Amy's trying to get us all to create our own persona. So, um Peter's the Monato African man. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's great. interesting to see. But uh, you can use it for good. I've been calling for donations for our online auction yeah. and you can put that out to the community and get all sorts of auctions, uh, auction items that we don't get when we put it on, under the Zoo's SA banner. Brilliant. So it's interesting. So if you're listening, connect with Elaine on LinkedIn, Elaine Benstead, uh, CEO of Zoo's SA. Thank you very much cool. for your time. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Good to chat. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.